0: Welcome back to the podcast. These episodes are designed to be a little more timeless and are part of the relaunch efforts of our flagship podcast series. We'll release these segments weekly on our YouTube channel and across podcast streaming platforms. Each weekly segment will focus on things that are happening that are unlikely to fall out of the news cycle over time and our coverage will go a little deeper than short news bites. Last week we covered bail reform. In this segment, we look at crime, prisons, and recidivism in America. Let's jump into it. Dating back to colonial America, there were a host of decisions that led us to how our country upholds justice today. Some of those decisions were born of good intentions. Others were downright nefarious. Right or wrong, they are the building blocks for the criminal justice system we have today. One constant throughout our criminal justice history is that America goes through periods of tough on crime measures that are typically followed by let's do actual justice periods. Starting as early as the 1500s, incarceration efforts were ongoing in England and prisons in the form of dungeons and various detention facilities existed as early as the first southern states. In colonial times, courts and magistrates meted out punishments that included fines, forced labor, public restraints, flogging, maiming, and death, with sheriffs detaining some defendants awaiting trial. But just before the American Revolution, around 1765, imprisonment began to replace these forms of criminal punishment. While historians differ on the origins of prisons in America, most agree that the first prisons was founded by the Pennsylvania Quakers with the Walnut Street Prison. Originally built as a conventional city jail in 1773, The Walnut Street prison was expanded in 1790 and hailed it as a model of enlightened thinking about criminals. Notably, one block of the prison was known as a penitentiary house, a block of 16 cells where prisoners were held in solitary confinement. It was the Quakers' belief that through reflection and repentance, inmates would give up crime and leave prison rehabilitated. The design and philosophy of this prison turned out to be the forerunner of an entire school of thought on prison construction reform as prisons were constructed in northern states. In the antebellum period, history suggests that southern states experienced a unique political anxiety about whether to construct prisons at all. A sizable portion of the southern population, if not the majority, didn't support the existence of penitentiaries. And southerners weren't very concerned about crime, they considered that to be a northern problem. Still criminal incarceration appealed to some, they believed that freedom would be best served if the criminal law was made more effective by eradicating its more brutal practices. In the north, the use of confinement as punishment in itself was viewed as a more humane alternative to capital and corporal punishment. Southern reformers reasoned that confinement would offer criminals the possibility of rehabilitation and restoration to society. But in the post-Civil War era. Southerners were faced with a diminishing control of former slaves, leading them to institute black codes. Under Johnson's reconstruction policies, nearly all the southern states would enact their own black codes in 1865 and 1866. History.com explains that black codes were restrictive laws designed to limit the freedom of African Americans and ensure their availability as cheap labor force after slavery was abolished. Under black codes, many states required black people to sign yearly labor contracts. If they refused, they risked being arrested, fined, and forced into unpaid labor. Once behind bars, prisoners would be leased out to farmers and factory workers for labor, effectively returning them to slavery. While the codes granted certain freedoms to African Americans, including the right to buy and own property, marry, make contracts, and testify in court, but only in cases involving people of their own race. Their primary purpose was to restrict black people's labor and activity. Black people who broke labor contracts were subject to arrest, beatings, and forced labor. And apprenticeship laws forced many miners into unpaid labor for white planters. It was during this period that mass incarceration of black Americans surged. In Louisiana, for example, two-thirds of the inmates in the state penitentiary in 1860 were white. Just eight years later, two-thirds were black. Around this time, two reformers visited every prison in the United States. Concerned at what they witnessed, they published a report that became the basis of the Declaration of Principles. Written and adopted by administrators in 1870, the Declaration asserted that the system needed to change. They believed that reformation should replace retribution as the primary purpose of incarceration. The Declaration advocated for prisoners to be classified based on a likelihood of reform and encourage education within the prison system. What came next was a new branch of the prison system, reformatories. Reformatories housed young men and women separately and were home to those deemed most likely to abandon criminal behavior. Inmates in the reformatories received religious and professional education, and indeterminate sentencing with the possibility of parole was implemented. Reformatories were only aimed at assisting those inmates already presumed likely to abandon criminal behavior. For those housed in other branches of the system, there remained little room for rehabilitation efforts. Any progressive work done in the 1900s was undermined by the simultaneous popularity of the eugenics movement. The eugenics movement took hold in the prison system beginning in 1907, leading to forced sterilizations for confirmed criminal idiots, rapists, and the mentally ill. The reasoning for forced sterilization was based on the belief that the propagation of their kind would be a menace to society, since they believed that hereditary played an important part in the transmission of insanity, idiocy, imbecility, epilepsy, and crime. In the 1927 uh, Supreme Court case of Buck v Bell, the court implied that all children of mentally disabled individuals would inherently be criminals when it ruled in favor of a Virginia law designed to be a preemptive sort of elimination of criminals. Justice Olivia Wendell Holmes wrote in the decision It is better for the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are mentally unfit from continuing their kind. The Habitual Criminalization Sterilization Act of 1935 allowed the compulsory sterilization of any person convicted of two or more felonies, but specifically protected white collar criminals. From this reproductive injustice. The black codes of the post-Civil War era were the roots of Jim Crow laws, a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation. Named after a black minstrel show character, the laws were meant to marginalize African Americans by denying them the right to vote, hold jobs, get an education, or other opportunities. Those who attempted to defy Jim Crow laws often faced arrest, fine, jail sentence, violence, and even death. At the same time, a cultural movement was taking place that vilified the black man in the eyes of the public. The 1915 film Birth of a Nation depicted the public punishment of black man after he raped a white woman, played into the fears of the post-Civil War public. The film was almost single-handedly responsible for the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, and bred an attitude that allowed the white criminal justice system to feel justified putting black men behind bars en masse. In all institutions, South or North, prisoners were segregated by race until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Following the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Departments of Corrections and the Bureaus of Prisons in every state were required to integrate all their facilities. Under Chief Justice Earl Warren, who led the Supreme Court from 1953 to 1969, key cases were heard that led to a rebalancing in many aspects of the criminal justice system. Beginning in 1970, Indeterminate sentencing came under fire by both liberals and conservatives. Liberals believed that largely white middle class parole boards would be biased in deciding whether an inmate sentence should be reduced. Conservatives supported harsher sentences and cited studies that parole boards weren't able to accurately predict who would recidivate. The 1970s brought a shift to sentences of defined lengths of time, changed the balance of power in courts, and altered public perception of crime. Many states eliminated indeterminate sentencing or took steps to narrow court oversight. Prison riots like the Attica riot in 1971, during which 43 inmates and guards died, brought about public scrutiny. George Jackson, a prisoner whose indeterminate sentence allowed him to be held in prison for life for a $70 robbery, published the book of letters *Sold Solda Brother. He claimed that the system was meant to immobilize black men. He received national attention, especially after Jackson was killed in prison shortly after the release of the book. By 1980, an accomplishment of civil and prisoners' rights movements included freedom of religion, medical care measures, standards of cleanliness and safety, access to courts, and the ability to advocate for themselves when charged with violation of prison rules. It resulted in prisoners serving more time than they had served a decade earlier and an unprecedented boom in prison construction. By 1985, the state prison population had grown so much that some states contracted with companies to build private for-profit systems. By 1996, some forms of mandatory minimums was in operation in every state in the United States. One result of this change was that judges no longer had sentencing discretion, no matter the circumstances of each individual case. Another result was that offenders were in prison for longer and longer periods of time. From the 1920s to the early 70s, incarceration rates remained largely stable despite rising and falling crime rates. Over that span of time, the number of incarcerated individuals ranged from 100,000 to just 200,000. But from the mid-1970s onward, the prison population skyrocketed. We can trace this inception of that directly to the Nixon's administration's so-called war on drugs. Lawmakers enacted harsh and often mandatory sentences for possession of drugs laws applied especially to crack cocaine which was the drug of choice for many African American users possession of 5 grams of crack cocaine would lead to a mandatory sentence of 5 years however 5 grams of powdered cocaine an almost identical substance but one that was the drug of choice for primarily white users would lead to a misdemeanor and possibly no time in prison at all in Michigan The sale of 650 grams of crack cocaine, even by first-time offenders, led to a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, the same punishment as first-degree murder. The laws led to a drastic rise in the black prison population. Nixon's war on drugs led to longer federal and state sentences, mandatory minimum terms, and tighter parole policies for drug and violent crimes. Today. Drug-related offenses are the number one reason for incarceration, making up 46% of all imprisonments. There are currently an estimated 2.1 million people in confinement in the United States, the majority of which are poor and people of color. How did we get here? Well, in addition to the consequences of the war on drugs, the perception that violent crime rates were rising dramatically beginning in the 1970s led to tough on crime laws in the early 1990s. The legislation that had the most far-reaching impact was the Violent Crime Control and Laws Enforcement Act of 1994. If you ask some criminal justice reform activists, the 1994 crime bill passed by Congress and signed by President Bill Clinton was one of the key contributors to mass incarceration in the 1990s. They say it led to more prison sentences, more prison cells, and more aggressive policing, especially hurting black and brown Americans who have long been disproportionately likely to be incarcerated. According to the left-leaning Brennan Center for Justice, the crime bill did some good and some bad. It contributed to both the crime decline and mass incarceration, but not in the way that people think. First, the good. Though the crime bill was not responsible for the entire drop in crime, it did likely help. Not by locking people up, but by putting more cops on the street, studies have shown. Then there's the bad. Although incarceration was already rising steadily before the crime bill, several of its provisions helped increase incarceration even further. From 1970 to 1994, the rate of imprisonment exploded 400%. From 1994 to 2009, imprisonment continued to rise, doubling in number. The crime bill contributed to this increase in incarceration. First, it banned 19 types of semi-automatic weapons authorized a death penalty for dozens of existing and new federal crimes and instituted a federal three strikes and you're out provision. But those facets were far less pernicious than how the crime bill influenced states to increase their prison roles. The bill granted states $12.5 billion to build prisons if they passed truth and sentencing laws, which required inmates to serve at least 85% of their sentence. A 2002 Urban Institute study found that between 1995 and 1999, nine states adopted truth and sentencing laws for the first time, and another 21 states changed their truth and sentencing laws to comply with the crime bill's requirement and then apply for funding. By 1999, a total of 42 states had such laws on the books, sustaining an increase in imprisonment. The crime bill, however, was just the most high-profile legislation to increase the number of people behind bars. On their own, states passed three strike laws, enacted mandatory minimums, eliminated parole, and removed judicial discretion in sentencing. By dangling bonus dollars, the crime bill encouraged states to remain on their tough on crime stance. What's worse, research shows the dramatic increase in incarceration in the 1990s and 2000s played a limited role in bringing down crime. In a case of diminishing returns, incarceration's effect on reducing crime had been declining since 1980. Tough on crime efforts with the war on drugs and the 1994 crime bill continue to negatively impact the criminal justice system as well as prisoners. Our system of justice is not one of rehabilitation, but one of punishment. And recidivism rates proves it. The dictionary defines recidivism as a tendency to relapse into a previous condition or mode of behavior, especially relapse into criminal behavior. But there's really no one definition of recidivism but all the definitions that do exist share three traits. Firstly, recidivism needs to have a starting event, such as a release from criminal custody or the completion of a rehabilitation program. Secondly, there needs to be some failure after this event, such as a subsequent arrest or a subsequent arrest for a violent crime. Thirdly, there needs to be a recidivism window, or a follow-up period under which an offender's further window can be considered to be recidivism. In every case, recidivism ultimately refers to a person's relapse into criminal behavior, usually after receiving sanctions or undergoing intervention for a previous crime. What is the national recidivism rate though? Though this is a simple question, there really isn't a simple answer. There have been many studies done to try to determine exactly that. Prison Insight, a bipartisan think tank, reports that there are over 10,000 prisoners released from state and federal prisons Every week. That said, trying to keep track of over 40,000 people every month and whether they re offend isn't really realistic. There are just too many variables at play. There are times when a former inmate will commit a crime that goes undetected. Because the recidivism rate is only detectable if a person is arrested, it's not possible to accurately record all instances of crime. There are ways to measure recidivism with more accuracy, but they aren't financially viable. And can be skewed due to subject responses for example a team can interview all subjects of the study on a regular basis but to come to any meaningful conclusion you need a very large data set this causes numerous issues because of the finances involved and the fact that many of the subjects may forget things over time or not even be willing to tell the truth in all cases All these factors considered, there is a very in-depth study by the Bureau of Justice Statistics completed from 2005 to 2014 that's by far the most comprehensive study ever done regarding recidivism. They determined the following trends regarding recidivism. Of a sample of over 400,000 prisoners released in 2005, 68% of released prisoners were arrested within 3 years. 79% of released prisoners were arrested within 6 years, and 83% of released prisoners were arrested, again, within 9 years. Using this study as a base point, one could state that the national recidivism rate is roughly 83%. This is the most complete number available from this study and is all-inclusive regarding all variables over the longest amount of time. Around 56.7% of the felons who were retaken into custody were apprehended by the end of the initial year of incarceration based on that same report. The majority of the repeat felons were property offenders. Many experts that have studied the rate of recidivism over the years find the program and policies in place to be the root of the problem. Recidivism rates aren't the best measure at all either. A report from John Jay College of Criminal Justice Research and Evaluation Center cautions that recidivism isn't a robust measure of effectiveness. Used as the sole measure of effectiveness, recidivism can mislead policymakers and the public, leading to inappropriate comparisons of dissimilar populations, and focus policy on negative rather than positive outcomes. Relying solely on recidivism rates as an evidence of justice effectiveness, the report says confuses a complex bureaucratic indicator of system decision making with a simple measure of individual behavior and rehabilitation. It can also define the mission of community corrections in law enforcement terms, which relieve agencies of their responsibility for other outcomes such as employment, education, and housing. Recognizing its limits encourage the development and use of more suitable measures. Namely, positive outcomes related to the complex process of criminal desistance. Fortunately, there are alternatives to recidivism for assessing the effectiveness of community corrections. The first step is to reorientate the goal of intervention to supporting desistance rather than preventing recidivism. In a desistance framework, crime reduction is viewed as a complicated change process in which individuals learn to be law abiding citizens over time. Recidivism is in a binary framework. People either succeed or they fail. Desistance allows for degrees of success even if there are occasional setbacks. One misdemeanor committed by a former robber with multiple priors would be an instance of recidivism, but it might also be an indicator of progress towards desistence. The difference is more than rhetorical. Focusing on desistance instead of recidivism leads justice system to reorientate operations and their measurements of success. A desistance framework encourages justice agencies to promote and monitor positive outcomes. The British government recently published a comprehensive review of research literature about desistance. The report asked the question, what helps individuals desist from crime? The research literature identified 9 critical factors. First, Getting older and maturing The prime age for crime are boys and men between the ages of 14 and 32. We know that people's brains do not fully develop the capacity for measured risk and cost-benefit analysis until roughly the age of 25, and then risk-seeking behavior is more prevalent among males younger than 25 than any other age or sex demographic. Family Relationships Poor family relationships increase the likelihood of acting out, as well as weaken ties to community at large. Furthermore, trauma experienced in youth often leads to maladaptive behaviors and coping mechanisms, as well as reducing the ability to weigh the needs and desires of others over oneself. Sobriety. We all know that people that are addicted to substances often commit crime in order to feed their addiction. Employment. People without a job are more likely to be in poverty, and poverty increases the likelihood of crime. Five, hope and motivation. If a person is in a perpetual state of hopelessness, then what good would it be to do to be a productive member of society if you can only get what you need through crime? Having something to give others. Seven, having a place within a social group. Community bonds and ties make people less likely to offend. 8. Not having a criminal identity. If one's identity is rooted in the fact that they are a criminal, then they are more likely to persist in being a criminal. And finally, 9. Being believed in. If others believe in you, you're more likely to believe in yourself, and you're less likely to offend others. Some of these factors would be difficult or expensive to measure, but a justice system that tracks them consistently would inevitably pursue a different intervention regime for justice involved individuals. It becomes evident that the old ideology of building more prisons to fight crime has only succeeded in putting more people in prison without any appreciable impacts crime rates. As a result, we find ourselves in an upward swing of a let's do justice period. Today's reformers focus on new technologies and strategy to put a dent in recidivism rates. Recidivism is positively affected if convicts have access to programs while they are incarcerated. A 2015 article in the New Jurist pointed out that until the mid-1970s, U.S. and jail systems were comparatively more focused on rehabilitation rather than punishment. However, in 1974, American sociologist Robert Matterson released a study titled What Works, which described his views on the shortcomings of prison rehabilitation programs. His skepticism of the rehabilitative process was enthusiastically embraced by national media, later evolving into what became known as Nothing Works Doctrine. The widely adopted Nothing Works mentality was centered around the idea that rehabilitation programs were simply a waste of time and money. Prisoners who participate in education programs have a 43% lower chance of being reincarcerated than those who do not. And for every dollar spent on prison education, the government saves $4 to $5 on the cost of reincarceration. Studies have shown that the cost benefit of correctional education systems in prisons are prevalent enough that they should not be ignored. The rationale behind implementing educational programs is that teaching cognitive thinking skills to inmates will help them make better societal choices after they're released, which in turn will lower the rate of recidivism. Multiple studies have suggested that roughly 40% of all incarcerated people have chronic mental health problems. With this in mind, the Bureau of Prisons began implementing cognitive behavioral therapy programs throughout its prison system starting in 2014. It should be noted here that this is only dealing with federal prisons. So, cognitive behavioral therapy is a form of psychological treatment that has been demonstrated to be effective for a wide range of problems, including depression, anxiety disorders, alcohol and drug use problems, marital problems, eating disorders, and severe mental illness. Numerous research studies suggest that CBT leads to a significant improvement in functioning and quality of life. In many studies, Cognitive behavior Therapy has demonstrated to be as effective as or more effective than other forms of psychological therapy or psychiatric medication. CBT is based on several core principles, including the following. Psychological problems are based in part on faulty or unhelpful ways of thinking. Psychological problems are based in part on learned patterns of unhelpful behavior. People suffering from psychological problems can learn better ways of coping with them, thereby relieving their symptoms and becoming more effective in their lives. CBT treatment usually involves efforts to change thinking patterns. These strategies might include learning to recognize one's distortions in thinking that are creating problems. And then to reevaluate them in light of reality, gaining a better understanding of the behavior and motivation of others, using problem solving skills to cope with difficult situations, and learning to develop a greater sense of confidence in one's own abilities. CBT treatment also usually involves efforts to change behavioral patterns. These strategies might include using role playing to prepare for potentially problematic interactions with others, and learning to calm one's mind and relax one's body. Not all CBT will use all of these strategies. Rather, the psychologist and patient or client work together in collaborative fashion to develop an understanding of the problem and to develop a treatment strategy. CBT places an emphasis on helping individuals learn to be their own therapist. Through exercises in the sessions as well as homework, exercises outside of sessions, patients and clients are helped to develop coping skills whereby they can learn to change their own thinking, problematic emotions, and behavior. Cognitive behavioral therapists emphasize what is going on in the person's current life rather than what has led up to their difficulties. A certain amount of information about one's history is needed, but the focus is primarily on moving forward in time to develop more effective ways of coping with life in the now and the future. This all makes intuitive sense. People who have experienced trauma are more likely to have maladaptive behaviors and coping mechanisms, which then increase the likelihood to commit crime. If a person can be taught how to better cope with these experiences, then the thinking goes. They would be less likely to reoffend. In 2016, the National Institute for Justice had also found that CBT had mixed results, primarily because it doesn't work for every type of offender and not every type of CBT program used what they deemed to be the best practices. They concluded that cognitive behavioral therapy is effective at deterring future crime and thus reducing recidivism. However, a meta analysis released by The Lancet in 2021 has shown that CBT training has no correlation on reduction in recidivism on its own. Instead, CBT combined with therapeutic community intervention did have a statistically significant reduction in recidivism. What are therapeutic communities? In short, It is a group-based approach of self-help to overcome various forms of bad behavior or dealing with crises think alcoholic anonymous or trauma support group the second chance act concurrent with the passage of the 1994 crime bill funding for educational programs for prisoners was severely cut by the clinton administration despite research that showed felons who had access to programs like ged and college level classes were less likely to end up back in prison in april of 2008 President George W. Bush signed the Second Chance Act, first of its kind legislation enacted with bipartisan support and backed by leaders of law enforcement, corrections, courts, behavioral health, and other areas. The Second Chance Act was designed to reduce recidivism and increase public safety, as well as to reduce correction costs for state and local governments. President Barack Obama expanded the program during his term in office when he pushed forward the Second Chance pilot program to provide funding for prisons and education system. Obama believed that prisoners should have the opportunity for education regardless of their record, that prisoners are no different from free men when it comes to education. As a result of the Second Chance Act, correctional education continues to provide prisoners with resources and training towards personal development and economic opportunity. However, restrictions and setbacks remain. For example, these programs are available only to prisoners eligible for release. Those with life sentences or violent offenders with maximum sentences are unable to participate. Discrimination among potential participants assumes that prisoners with education might still be dangerous and that there are certain individuals who cannot be reformed. Consequently, prison education in America remains severely constrained despite the obvious benefits of broader accessibility. The First Stepped Act and Biden Initiatives In 2017, Kim Kardashian made headlines when she announced her advocacy for criminal justice reform in the United States. She later announced the First Stepped Act at the White House. Former President Donald Trump signed the bill into law in December of 2018. The First Step Act was intended to do two things. Cut unnecessarily long federal prison sentences and improve conditions in federal prisons. Under the Act, Federal prisons offer some opportunities for people in prison to participate in services that either address their individual needs or help prepare them for life after release. Drug treatment and drug education are two examples. Others include English as a second language and educational classes. The First Step Act called for the Bureau of Prisons to significantly expand these opportunities. Within a few years, the Bureau of Prisons is required to have evidence-based recidivism reduction program, and productive activities available for all people in prison. That means vocational training, educational classes, and behavioral therapy should be staffed and broadly available. Participating in this program will in turn enable in prison people to earn time credits that they can put towards a transfer to pre-release custody, that is, a halfway house or even home confinement theoretically allowing them to finish their sentence outside of prison. On May 25th of this year, President Joe Biden issued an executive order on Advancing Effective Accountable Policing and Criminal Justice Practices to Enhance Public Trust and Public Safety. An article in How to Justice provides an explainer. The order touched on law enforcement's accountability, First Step Act implementation, prison conditions, and more. It started by recognizing the importance of the First Step Act and its implementation. The Biden administration committed to fully implementing the act, including by supporting sentencing reduction in appropriate cases and by allowing eligible incarcerated people to participate in recidivism reduction programs and earn time credits. Progress has been slow in the administration of this act. It's a federal-only program at this time, but successful outcomes will mean future adoption of the First Step Act of some form in the states. Bail reform also has positive impacts on recidivism. A groundbreaking study on bail reform in Harris County, Texas, detailed in an article from the crime report, found that bail reform impacts recidivism rates. Dropping money bail for individuals charged with nonviolent offenses resulted in a significant decline in convictions and incarceration, as well as a 6% drop in recidivism. The study by Quattron Center for the Fair Administration of Justice and the University of Pennsylvania's Carey Law School focused on the results of reforms introduced in Harris County, Texas. The reforms were required by a federal consent decree to change bail policy for misdemeanor charges. Under the new policy, authorities released 13% more people within 24 hours of their misdemeanor arrest. Although the results were limited to a single county. They buck recurring predictions from critics that bail reform will lead to increased crime. Quote, we show that it is possible to change the pretrial system and release more people in a way that benefits the general public, helps defendants, and doesn't lead to more crime. Paul Heaton, Academic Director of Quotron Center, said in a statement accompanying the report. The researchers examined 517,000 cases, covering all misdemeanor and felony cases in Harris County which includes Houston, one of the largest cities in the U.S., from 2015 to May of 2022. The study reported a 15% drop in both guilty pleas and convictions, combined with a 17% drop in the likelihood of a jail sentence. Others' findings include a 6% decrease in new prosecutions over three years following an arrest, indicating a reduction in a person's likelihood of future contact with the criminal justice system, a 13% increase in misdemeanor releases within 24 hours following an arrest, and a 15% average reduction sentence length. There's no doubt that America's criminal justice system is flawed in fundamental ways. Reforms have been successful in some cases and abject failure in others. Do we put people in prison to punish them for crimes or is prison supposed to be a rehabilitative process? It's a question we've asked across our history. And the answer still remains out of reach. Massive advocacy movements and new approaches are necessary to create a system that is equitable, that will humanize convicts while they are in prison, and support them after they are released. From the research presented in this program, it should be clear that at least three program types have positive impacts on recidivism. First, educational programs designed to give inmates marketable job skills once out of prison work well to reduce recidivism. The reason for this should be obvious. Poverty increases the likelihood of crime, and having a job works to alleviate poverty. Furthermore, having a job helps establish connections to a community, as well as give a person a sense of purpose and direction. Secondly, helping inmates recover from mental illness, including addiction, reduces the likelihood of offending. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one form of mental health intervention that has shown promise in the past, but may not be broadly applicable. More research into CBT is warranted with a focus on determining the exact people who would benefit the most from it. However, research indicates that even broadly applied CBT is a better at reducing recidivism than a punishment-only model of corrections. Additionally, it appears that having continued support for mental health after a person is released from prison further reduces the likelihood of offending. Lastly, increasing a sense of community and belonging within a former incarcerated person seems to work at reducing recidivism. As stated earlier, the Lancet study showed that CBT paired with therapeutic communities after release showed marked reduction in recidivism. These programs also tend to pair a person with a sponsor that is there to help them stay on track and establish a de facto wraparound support community for those going through the programs. Once a community of mutual respect help, understanding, and accountability is established, the likelihood for offending again diminishes. This is backed by other research into criminal behavior that shows a sense of belonging and quote being believed in work to reduce crime. We'll complete this series next Thursday with a segment on policing. We'd like to thank you again for joining us for this program and we know you liked what you heard because you stayed with us to the end so please be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share us with your friends. And as we say at Crowdsource Politics, keep your head up through the political storm.